Sahana Vavatu Sahana Bhunatu Sahavir Yankara Vavahai Tejas Vinavaditamastu Mavit Vishavahai Hey everyone, it's Peg Mulqueen and welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I believe there is so much more to our yoga practice than the shapes we make on our mat. And while this may very well be what brings us to yoga, it's the psychological and the spiritual development that maintains our enthusiasm and interest. And why we bring you these podcasts, interviews with the teachers who inspire and connect us. Because their stories are our stories that when woven together, begin to expose the true richness and beauty of what it means to practice yoga. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know of a few of the places I'll be visiting this year. Because as much as I do love staying connected online through this podcast, as well as on Instagram and Facebook, nothing, nothing replaces being able to meet you in person. And why I'm beyond excited to announce that this year, Ashtanga Dispatch is helping to sponsor the Ashtanga Yoga Confluence in San Diego the first weekend in March. Teachers like Richard Freeman, Tim Miller, David Swenson, Manju Joyce, Tim Feldman, and Dina Kingsburg, who I'm off to spend a month with, will all be there. I'm really hoping to see as many of you there as are able to come. But for those of you who can't attend, we'll be broadcasting one of the panel discussions and bringing to you right here on this podcast. And then in April, I'll be in the UK teaching with my friend Scott Johnson at Scotland's magical Eco Yoga Center, followed by a week in Glasgow and then Bath. And if you miss those events, I'll be back in London, May 12th and 13th, joining a true dream team of teachers for Still Point's annual Spring Gallery. Of course, you can also just come to Montana, where David Kyle and I will offer our mountain retreat the first weekend in August. Anyway, go to ashtangadispatch.com for more events and details. And let's make 2018 the year we connect for real. Now, on to today's episode with none other than Eddie Stern. I remember years ago when my daughter Megan practiced with Eddie at the Broom Street Temple. She was like visiting New York. She texted me to say how disappointed she was he wasn't there. But there was this really nice younger guy teaching, she told me. And he was funny too, she said. Apparently, she was in Garba, and she didn't know where the water bottle was. So instead, she was like struggling to get her dry arms through her legs. And this nice young teacher came by with a spray bottle. And with a wink, he let her know she could use as much as she wanted. It was free. (laughs) Then he proceeded to like hose her down. Adorable, right? Though, I was surprised Eddie wasn't there, because he usually is. You know, that's the thing about him. He's a world-renowned teacher but one who prefers more intimate time spent home with his family and his community. 
So I texted Megan a picture back and I asked her again, are you sure you didn't see him there? I bet you've already guessed it. Eddie, of course, was the young guy with the squirt bottle. <laughs> so adorable, right? Fast forward some years, after losing his lease on Broom Street, he's now in Brooklyn. An interesting story that we will actually begin the podcast with of how all that came to be. You know, I don't always start these interviews with an agenda, but in Eddie's case, I actually did have one. You see, I'd heard his stories into the energy of the yoga practice, and I wanted to learn more. And I admit right now, I was expecting like lots of kundalini and naughty talk. But what I got was a straight-up science lesson. Eddie teaches me about the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve that travels down through the roof of the mouth into the trachea, into the heart, the lungs, the liver, spleen, kidneys, pancreas, stomach, and into the intestines. Like no other nerve coming out of the brainstem has so much reach as this one. And what does this have to do with the yoga practice? Plenty. But trust me, I'm not even going to try to summarize. Better for you to listen to Eddie explain. And you're going to want to take notes. Trust me on this. So go grab a notebook and a pen. Here's Eddie Stern. It's an interesting story how you got here, right? I mean, this was not planned. Mm-mm. Not at all. We had, um, we were on in Soho for 20 years. And the building we had been in got sold. We tried to buy the floor that we were on. We couldn't buy it in the end. Um, so then we had to move out. And my landlord who had that building, who was trying to help us buy our floor, um, saw this building out here and he brought us out here and he said, um, I have this great building in Brooklyn. I'm thinking of buying it if, you wanna, if you'll put a yoga school in, in it. And um, we still were trying to buy that place on Broom Street. And so we came out and saw it, and I was like, George, I can't commit to anything until we get done with what's going on here. And then that sale fell through, and I wanted to stay in Manhattan. We looked around, we couldn't find anything we could afford. And we came back out here, and he said, look, I'm just going to make it so you can't lose. I'm going to give you the first six months for free, and then I'm going to charge you, and just for the studio downstairs. And then I'll charge you $2,000 a month for, for the next six months. And then after that, we'll raise it $1,000 a year till we get it to where I want it. And I thought he was right. Basically, I can't lose money on that if I'm not paying any rent. So then we um, looked at the building again, and we thought, wow, you know, this floor was a two-bedroom apartment, and the outdoor deck was, like, divided in half, and it was ugly. And But we thought maybe we could just use this as sort of a student communal area or something. So then we said to him, all right, I think we'll take two floors. Um, he said, well, I mean, you're going to have to pay rent. On that second one, I said, okay, I think we'll give it a try. And then we thought, you know, since we don't have a school in Manhattan anymore, maybe we should just move to Brooklyn. And so we looked again at the top floor, and we thought, all right, this is kind of nice. You know, there's a view of the church, and there are trees. It's sort of like living in France, so let's move to Brooklyn. So then we said, okay, George, we're going to take the third floor also. <laughs> He's like, ah, sure, I don't know about that. And, you know, he hemmed in, and then finally he gave in and said, okay, I'll give you two also. And then there was only one floor left, and um, which is the second floor. And I thought, well, you know, who's going to end up living there? Like, what if some hedge fund guy, you know, nothing against hedge fund people, or some somebody ends up living there who, sure. 
eats a lot of meat or they're smoking or they throw loud parties or they're young kids and they're drinking all the time and we get up at 3 a.m. and then in between us and the yoga school there are these people who maybe are complaining about us all the time and so I said, George, maybe we should just take that last floor too. But I had no idea what we were going to do with it. So first I tried to do it as like a co-located working space. That didn't work out at all. It was empty for a while, nothing was happening, and then finally we turned it into a B&B. So we run an Airbnb out of that. We've got the yoga studio on the ground floor, and this is our cafe and my office and library. We have a B&B there, and then we live on the top floor. So it ended up really nice. We got lucky. It feels so homey. Thank you. You know, you walk in, and everybody's so so nice. You walk in, everybody's sitting around the tables, and they're talking, and they're, you know having chai or, or your wife's concoction for mm. the flu season or, yeah. or whatever. And it just, you know, yeah, it feels like home. Awesome. I mean, that's, I think, really what we're going for, you know, to feel like just a homey thing. Like, I mean, with Guruji and Lakshmi Putam, we were practicing in his house also, you know, super homey feeling. So I guess we wanted to, in our own way, you know, keep on trying to re- recreate that. Like when you come in, you feel at home, you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable and welcome here and, that's kind of the goal. I feel like that's the way you taught the lead primary, in a way. I, it was really interesting. It felt comfortable. Oh, good. I mean, you, again, you just, lead primary, any kind of lead class can mm-hmm. feel, um, I don't know, it can, it, again, your nervous system can get up, it can mm-hmm. feel you're nervous, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to stay on count, and mm-hmm. and you're in a room, and yet, the way you began teaching, I think you did a lot of it in English. You were very simple in your language. I think you just said, Akam one. It was like you were just kind of like, ah, like, welcome here. And it, but it, it was like very conversational instead of directive. You know what I mean? It felt so comfortable. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was really surprised when we got halfway through. And I'm like, wow, I don't, I still felt really comfortable in a good way I'm struggling to like think of a different word mm-hmm. but that's actually the way it felt is that purposeful on your part well you know I don't know I think thanks thank you very much for the kind words um I think conversational is a really nice way of um putting it I you know I've never thought about it I'm um I'm one of those people who's always highly critical of everything that I do um and um So, you know, uh, perfectionism has its drawbacks Um, and very little positives. (laughs) But um, I think that, you know, saying that it it was conversational is nice because essentially yoga is about communication. Mm -hmm. Um, The lead classes, as I've said before, are about it's a listening practice. Um, Oh, good. I've quoted you mm -hmm. on that, never heard you say it, but I'm Mm -hmm. really glad you just did. It is. I mean, because if you're if you're rushing ahead to the next thing, that means your mind is projecting forward into the future, an expectation. Yeah. Um, and when you're when you're just listening, when we would do the leg classes with Guruji or with Sharat, and you're not rushing forward mentally or physically, then you're just listening. And in that listening point, that's all you're doing. There's no expectation. There's no like, you know, grasping. There's no whatever, it's just, here I am, I'm listening, I'm present, and that's what it is. And, and the oral tradition, which, where yoga comes from, is about listening. Someone's speaking and someone is listening. 
And then after a while, that person's been listening for a long time. Then if they become a teacher, then they'll be the one who are speaking, and then someone else will be listening. So there's this whole thing of, you know, articulation, receptivity, and then that's how it's passed on. That's what, you know, Parampara is. I wish every beginner would walk into a class like that. That, it took me a long time before I ever walked into an Ashtanga class. And in fact, the more I practiced, the less comfortable I felt. I mean, the more, the more I knew, the less, the more resistant I was to walking into a class because then it was like, oh, you really have to be a certain person, body, level, whatever. And then you, you think you should know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't teach it as if you should know everything. And there seemed to be just a nice place for everybody. And I thought, I wish I would have walked into that first. You know? Mm-hmm. Not that it was anybody's fault. It was mm-hmm. me. You know, it was my own projections. Mm-hmm. But I wish... That would be such a lovely, like, I want to say to my husband or, or any or any friend I have, just go in. Like, if you could be welcomed in that way, uh, I think just, yeah, it would have been really nice. Around the room, that there was very many levels. I mean, it doesn't matter. You could see some people had kind of just begun practicing. Yep, you have a lot of beginning level people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been practicing for a while. So you have to make room for everybody, you know, make sure that the people who are just beginning also feel comfortable, you know, safe that they can do it, that they can do what they can do. You even said, from this point forward, you allowed people not to have to do jump backs and jump throughs. Mm-hmm. That was so sweet. <laughs> well, some people have shoulder problems, yeah. or some people have this problem or that problem, and I know that they have that problem. Sure. And sometimes when you're in a room of people and they're all doing one particular thing, then you feel compelled that you have to do that thing also. Exactly. And so sometimes you need to just have someone say to you, you don't have to do that, don't worry. It's okay. This way is fine too. And um, otherwise you feel bad about yourself. That's the opposite of yoga. Well, I go back. We were watching a video of yours, actually a video series, and you, you you do a lot of different things. It's and you don't put it out there, but you have a beginning yoga series uh, with Deepak Chopra, maybe mm-hmm. is that right? And we went through the whole thing. It was awesome. When Megan's leg was feeling badly, she had, she had some pain in her leg. She started doing jump throughs as you instructed, just kind of coming. To, uh, both ankles were crossed, mm-hmm. kind of lifting, and then just coming through. Um, from there, she built the strength to do a jump through, like completely. I don't know if you, I mean, she's acing them now, but you know, she, but that's how she built the strength was just peeking in, looking at that little video clip, thinking that makes sense that I can do that, mm-hmm. you know, and going through. And I loved the progression that you took through that. Where is that? So you can say that out loud so people can... Where is it? Where is that video series? Uh, it's on oneworldyogis.com. That's it. Oneworldyogis.com. The last video, actually, which is the entire primary series, um, I didn't realize they'd put it up and we never did the voiceover. So it's kind of like a weird, silent primary series. But everything up to that is, is uh, pretty reasonable. Oh, it was um, really reasonable. Yeah. It was great. Good. Thank you. And um, the newest, you have the breathing app. Well, we have One World Yogis, and we did that series, and then I just did another series with them, which is um, 10 10-minute 10 videos, and the, um, 
the purpose behind it, it's called uh, Stress Reduction and Resiliency. And um, we made it in partnership with the USO, which is the United Service Organization. So in, um, on January 1st, that video series is being given to uh, the whole U.S. military as part of um, a, a wellness practice for military personnel before they go into any kind of active duty. And people who already are in active duty will receive it as well. Um, there's a lot of work being done with PTSD, but there's um, almost no work being done with resiliency practices before you go into conflict zones or before you go into service. Oh, wow. So the idea was let's make a simple program that can be given to people to start working on that so that maybe we have to do a little less with PTSD on the other side. Um, so that we'll study that, we'll work on the program, we'll work with the NIH eventually to study those um, the videos and the, and the implementation, and then starting next year, I'll go um, once a month or so. I'll go to a military base and do some training with with the people for the videos. So, um, so that was just finished, and that's also on the One World Yogi's website now. So anybody can access. Anyone that. can do that for the military. It's free, but for people, other people, it's you know, it's like four ninety nine or something. It's pretty cheap. And um, then. Um, we have um, uh, the breathing app also, so that just came out. Um, that's something I'm really pleased with. We love it. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, the, we have a new design for it, which I'll show you after. I'm not going to show it to you now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nobody can see it. This is what it looks like. <laughs> and, um, but the new design is really very nice. It's a big upgrade. It's all the same functionality, um, but we have ratios for kids. Like, um, so kids can do it because they can't inhale for five seconds, usually, or six. So it's a two-second inhale, a three-second exhale, and a four-second inhale, and a four-second exhale. Beginners can use those also, or people who have any type of, um, you know, lung problems where they can't quite do the full um, resonance ratio. And um, we have a music option on every page, and then uh, the same sounds of Moby's, and then we also have um, some different images in the background in case people just don't want a black background, they feel that's a little ungrounding for them or something. So that'll be hopefully out next weekend, and uh, they, it looks really nice. I'm really pleased with it. So that's the breathing app. We the sit with that. Store. We sit with that mm -hmm. every morning. Mm -hmm. the store. Sure. Shut the window now too. That's okay. I've recorded in my store too, and we've had generators and. On just an iPhone as well. Yeah. But we we sit with the app in the beginning of every practice, and we keep it playing. Awesome. When we start practicing, there's just something very settling about it, and it just feels good. And it's just the yeah. two of us practicing. So, yeah, I, there's something about it. You know, I have a I have a four four ratio with the sounds also. Uh, actually, it'll be on the new one. So because inhaling six, exhaling six is a little bit long for practice, but Guruji used to say that, you know, just as you're doing your regular practice, inhaling four, exhaling four was fine. Um, that was good, a good steady thing to do. So on the new one, if when you go into the four-four ratio, you can have the sounds playing for half an hour and then start it again if you want to. Um, that's a little easier to do than the six-six. We'll be doing that. Yeah. Um, I used to try to practice with a 4-4 ratio even in my sword in the 1990s, just really sticking with it. It was amazing mental discipline. I originally asked you to come on the podcast 
because I don't generally, I mean, I can interview, but obviously I'm not a professional. What I am is really interested. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people came back from the confluence uh, last year and the year before. Mm -hmm. I know you're not there this year, Mm -hmm. but they came back from the talk that you gave. And I think it was on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And you rocked people's worlds. I mean, it was really profound. And so I'm sure it lost something in the translation, but it's something I've been really interested in, mm-hmm. in, in the whole energy of the, the practice, partially because of my own, you know, me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I expended a lot of energy in the beginning. And when I say beginning for like years, um, ran out of energy spent a couple of years trying to recoup and, and to be honest with you, I think that's what I work on the most is maintaining that, that balance so that it feels comfortable. Like I used the words, you know, before mm-hmm. so that it continues to feel comfortable, not so that I'm relaxed completely, but so that I'm steady. Mm-hmm. Can you, because I, I saw the breathing app as maybe something that came out of that is it? Yeah, it did. Okay. Yeah, it did. Well, I mean, you're looking for comfort and steadiness as sthira and sukha, obviously, that you know. Um, so there's nothing wrong for looking for comfort and ease in your mind and in your body. I mean, that's a good goal to have. Um, Guruji used to talk about the nervous system a lot. Um, I didn't know anything about it, really, when I was studying with him. And... Um, so I just investigated on my own and I thought about things and I would ask questions and I remember at one point um, this was still in the late 1990s he said um, that Shishunanadi where the Kundalini rises up was the vagus nerve and I had never heard anyone say that before I didn't even know what the vagus nerve was in fact, I had never heard of the vagus nerve, um, but I remembered it because it just stuck in my mind. I thought, what is this vagus nerve? And that sent me on, you know, basically like a multi-year study to find out everything I could. Uh, there was not as much information back then as there is now. And now the vagus nerve is really known as one of the drivers, um, or at least not necessarily the driver, but the, uh, the information pathways for a lot of things that are really important for the yogis. Um, so uh, the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve, and it's a big bundle of nerves, of which 80% of them are sensory, and 20% of them are um, you know, not sensory. Uh, they're um, sending information rather than receiving, uh, bringing the information back. Um, the... Um, most of the cranial nerves go basically to like one place or a couple places. Uh, the olfactory nerves, for example, mainly just go to the sense of smell. The ocular motor nerves mainly go to the eyes, etc., uh, etc. Et the vagus nerve is slightly different, radically different, in that um, it starts in a little above the brainstem and it travels down um, through into the roof of the mouth, into the trachea the larynx, into the lungs, into the heart, into the liver, the spleen, the kidneys, the pancreas, the stomach, and into the intestines. Um, No other nerve coming out from the brainstem has so much of a reach. 
And because 80% of those nerves are sensory, that means it's picking up information from all those organs and sending them back up to the brain to tell the brain what's happening in the rest of the body. So when we talk about, um, you know, uh, a gut brain, we're really talking about um, the all... Well, the gut brain is a completely different thing. Let's leave that off to the side for a moment. Um, so the vagus nerve is, is picking up information from the intestines, from the heart, from the lungs, from the diaphragm also, sending that information back up to the brain, telling the brain what to do, and then the brain directs more activity down to the body. So it's bi-directional. Um, also... Um, the vagus nerve is stimulating tone of voice. It's stimulating the inner ear, the cochlea, where hearing occurs, and also the, um, it's connected with the uh, muscles around the eyes for expression in the eyes, like if we're happy and we smile with the eyes, especially the creases here, or if we're upset, and there's, a, again, a change in the muscle tone here. So we have um, vocal expression, hearing and facial expression all tied in with the vagus nerve as well as connective connectivity down to the heart and to the lungs and to the diaphragm um, and all the internal organs, the digestive organs. Um, so that's like a lot of material. There's a lot of interesting things going on there. And when the tone of the vagus nerve is low, then you see a lot of different things happening. Um, if the vagus nerve tone is low, you can either see inflammation in the body um, or in the organs. Um, you can see um, anxiety and depression, low energy, um, poor digestion, digestion uh, digestive problems, irritable bowel syndrome, things like that, um, epilepsy. There's a whole host of things that occur when there's low vagal tone. Um, when there's high vagal tone, then you have, of course, the, the opposite of all of those things. So high vagal tone can help reduce inflammatory problems. It's been shown to reduce um, uh, episodes of epilepsy. It can help reverse digestive problems, etc., etc. And also, um, the um, vagus nerve is responsible for moderating, through the parasympathetic nervous system, the trigger points. So when we have body pain, for example, especially low back pain and things like that, this can be because the sympathetic nervous system is in a hyperarousal or in some constant state of low-level inflammation, and um, the, the vagal break, which is controlling the parasympathetic nervous system, is impaired at that time. So we want to fix the breaking mechanism um, so the sympathetic arousal down-regulates and then the inflammation can start to go away. So there's a lot of research on these things. Um, so when we talk about the nervous system, um, especially the autonomic nervous system, this is the, brand, the part of the nervous system that the yogis seem to be most interested in. Um, the sympathetic nervous system is related to activity, expressions of activity, um, and, um, or the adergenic nervous system it's also called, um, because it relates to the release of particular types of hormones that are coming through either the, uh, the neural networks or through the bloodstream, which are moving us towards activity or moving us towards, um, you know, whatever we need to respond to in terms of the environment. Uh, and the parasympathetic is related to rest and digest and slowing down, anything which is relaxing. So every time we inhale, we're moving towards activity. That's um, a function of the sympathetic nervous system. 
So the inhale and the sympathetic nervous system, they are part of the same expression of energy. And, or forget energy, let's, if we're talking science, they're the same expression and function of a physiological process. And then the exhale is associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. So exhale and parasympathetic go together as well. We're inhaling and exhaling all through the day, and we have this back and forth between sympathetic and parasympathetic. So these are complementary systems. Um, they're not opposing systems. The opposite of sympathetic is not parasympathetic. The opposite of activity is not rest. They're complementary. They're going on all through the day. Um, so one of the ways that um, people, you know, also you'll hear sympathetic referred to as fight or flight, and parasympathetic is rest and digest. But the sympathetic is only fight or flight when you're in hyperarousal, when you need it, when there's some danger. That doesn't mean the sympathetic isn't happening all through the day, because it is. Whenever your eyes dilate, you know, whenever there's peristalsis, which is happening with digestive system, with the liver, with all sorts of organs. Um, so we're built on, we are a function of complementary systems. That's what our whole physiological organism is. We just are, and not only are we an entire biological mechanism of complementary systems that are all working harmoniously together, we're also functioning with our external environment because we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a bubble. So our, you know, our whole system is responding then to the environment. Um, when the sun sets, we're going to start getting ready to go to bed. When the sun rises, we wake up. We have a nucleus in the center of the, of the brain, which is called the um, suprachiasmic nucleus, which is tracking the movements of the sun and the moon, so we know when to wake up and go to sleep, as well as melatonin releasing, like a million other things too. Um, and um, temperature, our body is tracking temperature, so when the temperature drops and we're going to conserve energy, when it's warmer out, we're going to expend and we're going to need to sweat. So we are constantly in this symbiotic relationship with our, the environment, because the environment is our extended physical body. When there is a, an excess of load coming from the environment towards us, and we can't mentally deal with it or physically deal with it, that's called um, distress. So stress is basically like a neutral phenomenon. It's not bad or good. Stress is neutral. When we have too much of an incoming load, then, and we can't deal with it, we get distressed. When we have positive incoming load, it's called eustress. It's a good stress. It helps us to grow. So when there's too much stress coming in, and it's called distress, the nervous system has to respond to it in a particular way. And this is going to be particularly the sympathetic nervous system is going to start doing certain functions to help deal with what the world is sending towards us. And when that happens, our accelerator gets pressed down and the braking mechanism gets impaired. Okay? So, Can hold I on. Add, no, this hold is on, like, man. okay, go ahead. So, what's the best way to get the brake to work again? To exhale. Because... Your exhale is the thing which is going to strengthen the parasympathetic and the vagal break. They're the same thing. But to strengthen the vagal break, all you need to do is begin to focus on your exhale. And automatically everything calms down. This is why when someone is upset and they're crying and you say to them, just breathe, just exhale. And, you know. and uh, so automatically it bypasses the hyperarousal of the limbic system, gets you back into your cognitive function and says, okay, I'm feeling this particular thing, but I have this tool to deal with it. And, I'm gonna, and the breathing is the best and easiest way to do it 
because it's a physiological mechanism which is responding to a physiological response. So um, anyway, so this is just a very basic thing about like what the nervous system is doing in regards to the environment. And I mean, we didn't talk about why the yogis started manipulating it, but just some background, because stress is really the driver of one of the reasons why people come and do something like yoga anyway. Well, I, I just do- wanted to, I, this, is, this is blowing my mind, because when we moved, we used to live in D.C., mm-hmm. very stimulated environment, uh-huh. right? It was so hard. And it was, it, I didn't think it was hard. I was definitely in an elevated state. And I always say when we moved to Montana, it was like I could exhale. Yeah. And it definitely felt that way, but not just in a figurative way. It was about then when I realized that I never fully exhale. Mm-hmm. That I'm constantly, I'm always inhaling, but I never really find the bottom of my exhale. So my own, it just, in the, that was the yoga practice. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, like walking around. That was like in my yoga practice, I realized that I was constantly inhaling without ever fully exhaling. But that awareness didn't come to me until we moved. But I always describe the move as mm-hmm. an exhale. Yeah, in the end of the lead class yesterday when you were all resting, that's one of the things that you know, we do is that you let your awareness rest at the very end of your exhale. I loved that. Without trying to lengthen it, just let your awareness rest there. And then what's happening is you're automatically activating this parasympathetic response, which is safety, contentment, relaxation, self-awareness. All the things automatically um, begin to just be present uh, when the when the sympathetic nervous system like deactivates for a little while. And here you are in the middle of the city. No, we're in Brooklyn. Yeah, well, it's, uh-huh. it's still a city. <laughs> the, the city's over there across okay, the bridge. Right. I mean, over there, it's a nightmare. Over here, it's quite pleasant. So, um, anyway, um, okay, so the thing that's really interesting is um, that um, the the toning of the vagus nerve can be done through uh, four basic things. And this is based on the research of um, a guy named Dr. Stephen Porges and some others, Dr. Um, Bethany Koch and Barbara Fredrickson and a lot of others. Um, And so what they've all seen is that the vagus nerve can be toned through behavior, um, through vocalization, because the vagus nerve is coming through the throat, through through breathing, and through posture. So all of those four things are basically everything we do in yoga. Behavior is yama and niyama. Um, It's practicing compassion and forgiveness and kindness and equanimity and all those things. Uh, Vocalization is chanting, but it's also the sound we make in the vocalized breathing, um, or the breathing with sound, or sometimes called ujjayi, incorrectly. And um, sometimes uh, with the... um, uh, the next thing is going to be um, breathing. So the breathing is also, again, you can fit it into that same category of vocalized breathing, but any of the pranayama practices or the resonant breathing like we do in the breathing app. And then the last thing is posture. And the reason posture is contained in there is because um, the, um, the uh, baroreceptors, which are the nerves that wrap around the carotid artery, there's baroreceptors in a lot of places in the body, but particularly around the carotid artery in the throat near the vagus nerve, we have these receptors 
that are um, measuring basically what our blood flow and our blood pressure is. So it's regulating blood pressure at this area in the throat. So anytime we are um, stimulating the baroreceptors in relation with what's happening with blood pressure, then it's going to help to balance out that relational um, you know, modulation of our internal systems. And sitting up straight, for example, automatically is going to be stimulating for the baroreceptor. So even when you just sit up straight for a meditation, it's going to start stimulating this area. But all of the different postures that we do in yoga as well are going to help stimulate the baroreceptors in different areas of the body that are going to help regulate our blood pressure as well. Um, so those four things that are going to increase vagal tone and then help us access the deeper levels of the nervous system and how we respond to the world happen through all of the yoga practices that we do. So this was like a massive eye-opener for me because one of the things that really interested me um, you know, for some years now was how does consciousness express itself through our biology, through this whole body, through our whole thing? Like, how is consciousness like expressing itself through not just our limbs, but through our internal organs and especially the nervous system, where we have so much identification with ourselves and the world around us? And, um, and how can we use our physiology to then backtrack and go deeper towards awareness, towards consciousness, towards knowing who we really are? Uh, how can we use our physiology as a jumping off point for that? And so I think what the yogis were doing were they taking all these practices and using them as, as jumping off points. If you use your body in this particular way, if you use your breath in this particular way, if you chant in this particular way and behave in this particular way, it's not just for the sake of, you know, doing something, you know, good or whatever, but it's because it's going to help balance this part of you that thinks you are you and then give you more insight into who that you really is, who that I really is. So um, I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, and then after I, then I just decided I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided that's really, you know, that's what they were doing, that's why. And then I started looking more into it um, and um, making other uh, correlations. And correlations aren't always right, but for example, um, all of the functions that occur in our brainstem um, are the autonomic nervous system functions, and they're things like our heartbeat and our blood pressure, digestion, sexual reproduction, sleep, body temperature. Um, and it occurred to me that these are all the things that the yogis were trying to control. Uh, they were trying to control respiration through kumbhaka. They would um, control appetite through caloric restriction, through fasting and limiting food, or eating only particular foods. Um, they would stay awake for long periods of time um, at certain times. Um, sexual reproduction, they would be celibate. Um, and so all these different practices that you find uh, traditionally in yoga were things which begin to control the functions that are being expressed through the brainstem. And so I started thinking about all the practices we do as a way to begin to hack these functions of the nervous system which are being expressed through the brainstem particularly. And the idea being that all of these things like our breath, our heart rate, heart rate food, sexual activity, etc., um, these are all things that are survival mechanisms. Like, if we don't eat, then 
we're going to die. If we don't breathe for long enough, then we're going to die. If no one reproduces, then there's going to be no more people. And um, in um, Chapter 2 of the Yoga Sutras, we talk about the Panchakleshas. And um, in those Panchakleshas, you can see that Abhinivesha, or fear of death, or fear of extinction, is the last of the kleshas, or the last thing um, which is obstructing our ability to really know who we are. Um, and so, if you want to have self-knowledge, then you have to uproot this fear of extinction, of who will I be if I'm not all these things? Who will I be if I'm not my likes and my dislikes and my personality and my very breath, my heart rate, my ability to, you know, reproduce? Who am I if I'm not all the things that my survival function tells me that I am? So by directly accessing the survival functions and transcending them, even for short periods of time, it can give us insight into who we are behind all of these functions that are happening all through the day that our sense of individuality is tied to so deeply that we don't even know that we're tied to it because it's happening automatically. So if something happens automatically, that means that it's happening without our awareness of it. And that means that it's this mechanism which has bound us. So how do we become unbound? By playing around with the things which are happening automatically, examining them, seeing what happens if we transcend them for a little while every day. Then who do we become? Is this like maybe why when you do start, when, you know, practice over time does change mm-hmm. us? It's really hard to put words to why. You know, I don't know when bedtimes became bedtimes for me and what I eat and when I eat and how I behave. I know that something worked. You know, I I feel better. I know what it feels like to feel good, be well-rested, to eat well, to be kind. I mean, like, I know that it's made me a better, kinder person. Mm -hmm. Megan will tell you it made me a better mother. (laughs) Um, But that's happening then, what you're saying is automatically. Because... People often say, well, how does the yoga asana or, or any of the yoga work? Like, you know, it, it can look on the outside like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel like that sometimes, that you're just doing a lot of different postures and, and you see that outward expression. But there is something happening. It's just hard to articulate, and I don't actually know why. Is some of the things you're talking about, it, toning that vagus nerve Uh and hacking into my nervous system or anyone's and over time that also works automatically is that i think that that i think that the first time anyone lies down in they've done any kind of postures and some breathing and whatever and then they lie down in you know quote unquote shavasana or they rest at the end um people go into a very quiet state and sometimes very deep state just from that first resting time like, it happens to almost everybody, practically. Um, so how does that happen? Why does that happen? I have no idea. Um, but, um, and, you know, the yogis weren't the only people to do it like that. I mean, there have been... Progressive muscle relaxation was done in the 1920s and 30s um, by a psychologist here in New York. Um, that he, and he did that independently of ever having done yoga. And they do it in all sorts of different traditions have a way of, you know, resting into a deep state. Um, but 
you know, why is it that when we do some poses, we do some breathing, we rest at the end, we can let go of everything and go into that deep quiet? Um, I really think the underlying mechanism is the nervous system. Um, and um, that there's something about some very basic mechanical functions that allow um, our sense of I-ness to not disassociate, but to relax away from the need to hold everything together all the time. So when, you know, no one comes to yoga because they feel awesome and everything is perfect in their life. Like, no one goes, I have all the money in the bank that I need, um, I'm really good, I have a great husband or wife, my health is super good, um, I'm really content, everything's fantastic, oh, I'm going to go to a yoga class, you know. I'm not searching for anything at all, I'm just good. They're not going to go. You only go to a yoga class if you feel there's a little bit something missing. You still might have a lot of money, or, you're not, or you still might not feel you need any money and you're happy. Uh, you might have a great husband or wife, you might have a great job, you might have all that stuff might be in line. But if somehow your soul is not seeking for something, um, or your inner sense of being is not seeking for what is all of this about, you're not going to go to yoga. You'll do something else, but you'll only come to a contemplative practice if somewhere inside you you're seeking or searching for something. That's just a basic thing about yoga. No one comes to otherwise they don't want to do it. How many people do you know who've said, you want to do some yoga with me? And they go, nah, I'm all right. I'm good. You know, and they don't want to go. So this is like a prerequisite is to go, there's something a little bit I'm not addressing, and there's something a little bit missing, and then I'm going to seek for that thing. And um, when we're always identifying our sense of I, or trying to find, um, you know, the, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not clarification, but um, some type of... Anyway, we look to reinforce the I in the world that we live in with our work or our relationships or our job or our creativity or our art or whatever. Like we look individuation. To, yeah, we look to reinforce the, the sense of, of personality and I-ness out there with the things that we do. And after we've done a little bit of practice and we lie down and rest, then for a few minutes, like, the sense of I sort of relaxes away from... Um, you know, seeking outwardly for knowing who it is. And that's like the beginning of a spiritual search. That's like the beginning of a, of a practice. When, when that sense of I first kind of relaxes away from needing to be verified by the world outside, then all of a sudden you feel there's this thing inside me which now can become um, a, a, an object of my meditation, an object of my search that this thing inside me that I felt in that, in that quiet space can be something for me to investigate um, rather than looking for it, you know, to be validated in the world around me. And so the yoga poses in particular are a very good um, way to let our awareness be centered within the confines of my physical body for a little while rather than my awareness of me being lost out in the world, dealing with all the everyday stresses that I'm dealing with all the time, whether it's bills or relationships or whatever it could be, or presidents or anything. So for those little while that I'm on my yoga mat, at least in, in the beginning, now I'm bringing all of my awareness just to this body right now. I'm not worried about the stuff out there. 
And even when you're struggling in a posture, you're still bringing your awareness in that field, just here in this thing for a little while. With the body, you might not even be thinking about your breathing yet. Maybe you are. Um, that's just enough space to allow this, um, the, the sense of I to be in you for a little while. And in that being in you for a little while, that is where things start to relax. That's where the exhale occurs. Um, it's hard to let that exhale go fully when we have a lot of pressure from the world. But when we um, bring all of our awareness not to the world, but just to my physical organism for a while, and to my mind, and to my emotions, and then I relax in that, that's where the rest of the exhale can occur. Um, so, I don't know. Do you think that sometimes the way we practice, is it possible to go the opposite way? Is it possible to practice in a way that... Yes, definitely. Okay, that's, I mean... Is it possible to practice in a way which is purely physical, where you're trying to now impose your sense of I yes. on the world, yes. rather than let your I relax and dissolve and be a part of the whole world? Um, 100%. You know, you can see it all around. Open up Yoga Journal. <laughs> you know, look on the internet. Um, there's tons of examples of that. But that's, you know, okay, that's just somebody else's story, someone else's journey. Um, but it's definitely possible to do that. Uh, I know plenty of people in the Ashtanga yoga world who um, have practiced like that, and because that's so hard to maintain, eventually they stopped. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to maintain that um, over a long period of time because there's too much pressure. And when you have too much pressure on you like that, then eventually you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to burn out. So, that definitely I've seen. One of the things I really enjoyed about your space, and in fact, Megan and I said this as we left, was that it was quiet. It was... Because it's downstairs, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't feel... There's not the same kind of frenetic feel that can often happen in a big room in a... In a famous space. It feels like a big cave, huh? Well... It, to me, it does. I yeah, feel like it's kind it of... Does. Like, it does. You know, yeah. We have, like, we have cement floors, which are, are heated, it's true, but, you know, our walls are like, we have the stone wall, and we have the lime plaster everywhere else, and to me, it feels kind of like a big cave. I like it. I, I feel like I'm going in another world kind of thing, and just yeah. kind of entering down there, but I... I enjoy, I actually enjoy practicing alone. You know, the, the mm -hmm. two of us practice together upstairs in our, you know, second floor. Just we have a, a little dedicated space. But I find it can get overwhelmed pretty quickly. It's been a big realization for me because I think that I practiced in a way definitely that brought my nervous system higher instead of balancing it out. I definitely felt that way. That little space, you were talking about the end and the rest part. And I wonder if I ever took enough time in that space. I now understand what you're talking about when you say it, it, that's when things kind of dissolve a bit. And, mm -hmm. that, and it, maybe that's where I would, that maybe that's the only place I would find it for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, for, well, a couple things. Number one, when you lie down and rest, it takes, because we've been, we have a very active yoga practice, this Ashtanga yoga. Um, 
is very active. We've spent an hour or an hour and a half or sometimes two hours with a lot of activity. Um, and uh, even if it's calm and focused, it's still more tilted towards sympathetic expression of activity. And then when we lie down and rest, it takes a little while for the sympathetic response to settle down and the parasympathetic to become activated. And usually it takes about seven minutes for that to happen. So if you rest for less than seven minutes, you usually don't get that um, the vagal break activated or the parasympathetic response activated if you get up too quickly. So usually, like seven minutes is the minimum. We'll have everyone rest after class, and that's how much I rest on my own. If you want to stay a little longer, like up to ten minutes or so, it's fine. Guruji and Krishnamacharya said fifteen minutes was too much, but ten minutes was good. Um, if you can get while you're doing the deep breathing at the end, you can access that um, the shutting off of the sympathetic nervous system while you're doing the deep breathing. You don't need to rest for that long. But usually for um, beginning level students and people even learning intermediate, there's a lot more sympathetic activation, so they need to take time to rest after. So you see a lot when people are learning intermediate, they have a hard time sleeping. Um, it's because of the action on the spine, which is being done through a lot of the back bending and the leg behind the heads. Um, so uh, those poses need to be done with a little bit more care and a little bit more focus on breath and definitely spending time resting after. Um, because if you leave yourself in sympathetic arousal through the day, you'll definitely have a hard time sleeping. It's going to happen anyway. It's not a big deal. Eventually you'll sleep. But I noticed a specific focus on your part with the eye gaze, with backbends. And uh-huh. I know it's to be true, but I can say it's not practiced like that very often with the gaze going up with a lot of the back bends, and you're very specific. Like upward-facing dog, look upward at your nose. Upward-facing dog, you, you repeated over and over that the gaze was towards the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of the intermediate backbending practices. Oftentimes people are looking up. I don't know if it was practiced that way at one time, or if that's just our general you know, inclination to use our eyes to kind of go higher. Well, this is what happens, is that... Um, your head will basically go wherever your eyes are looking. If you look to the side, your head wants to go there. If you look back, your head wants to go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. See, so even you feel your chin just going up slightly. <laughs> so if you're an upward-facing dog, and you look between your eyebrows, you're not really, no one's really looking between their eyebrows, most people are looking back. And the reason is, is because they want to arch further back. But what happens when you do that is you're just bending your neck further back. You're not arching your back more because all you're doing is indicating to your head, head, go further back. But as soon as you shift the gaze to your nose, what happens is you can lift up through the chest and through the front of the body and the neck relaxes a little bit and you can access your spine more. So, and also... There, um, there's some connection between the gazing at the nose and mulabandha, where when you're just looking backwards and upward-facing dog, it's um, not much will be happening automatically with mulabandha. But when you look at your nose and upward-facing dog, there's somehow this automatic connection with mulabandha, and it just goes. Um, there's some neural connections. I could probably make something up and sound really smart, but. Uh, it, at this point, I'd just be making it up. 
Um, but I felt it. So it's really yeah. cool, huh? Yeah. yeah. It's super cool. And the same thing happens with any backbend and intermediate. Like if you shift your gaze to your nose, you'll feel the rest of your spine. If you look back, all you do is you'll push further into the neck joint. You feel the um, strain. And what happens is, is the, the shape of the neck and the shape of the lumbar vertebrae are the same. So whatever shape your neck is in, your lumbar wants to do the same. So if you crunch back in your neck, automatically your lumbar vertebra will start to crunch too because those two shapes are mirroring, they're the same as each other, just in different parts of the spine. Um, so as soon as you bring length into your neck, you'll also start to bring length into the lumbar vertebra too. I'd never heard that. That's, that's cool. Yeah, those two things, are, they're the same shape and, they've, and they're the same shape because they function together um, in a healthy spine. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Almost makes me want to do back buns right now. I know, right? But, but not. I can mm. wait. <laughs> well, I want to switch gears. I just want to ask you. I you hope that wasn't too complicated or anything. No. I mean, so, I that mean, was really helpful. I, I mean, my mind is, I know my mind is a complicated mind, but for, for me, teaching yoga is simple and practicing yoga is simple. But when I think about things, I, I know that it's not simple. So I look at complicated things to try to understand simple mechanisms. And I always thought that, you know, like when in regards to Guruji and other spiritual teachers in India who, or, or anywhere, any mystical teachers, they have the ability of presenting a very difficult concept in very simple terms. And Guruji was able to do that, and a lot of all the saints that were inspired by are able to do that. And so, um, you know, that's when, you know, I'm not afraid to look at things in a complicated manner, but they shouldn't be taught in a complicated manner. Otherwise, they won't be effective. So I try to keep it as simple as possible. I understand. Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. I admit that the way I learn is I, I do get inquisitive and mm. I, I do kind of want to delve in and maybe just knowing that it was automatically happening mm. should satisfy me. But it's, it's, I don't know, kind of cool to hear some of the science behind it. Mm. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I always knew, you know, I always know that if I practice primary, mm -hmm. it feels very settling to me. Mm -hmm. It feels very grounding. You mm -hmm. know, I always know that if I practice intermediate, I'm going to feel a little bit more energized. And, um, mm -hmm. it, like, I know that between the series that I can feel the shifts in energy. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the nervous system and when it comes to the spine and the peripheral nerves also... Um, forward bending movements are relaxing, they activate parasympathetic. Um, extensions or backward movements are energizing for the spine and twists are organizing for the nervous system because they're balancing the flow of information between the right and left hemisphere of the brain through the corpus callosum. So forward bending, relaxing, backward bending, energizing, twisting is organizing. Um, now the parasympathetic nerves primarily come out um, in the brainstem, in the cervical vertebra, and at the bottom lumbar and sacral plexus. Okay? That's where the parasympathetic nerve endings are. They come out here, and they come out here. The okay. high cervical and the lower lumbar and sacral. That's the only place where the parasympathetic nerves are coming out. So anytime that we're doing any kind of forward bending motion, 
this area here in the lower spine and the neck, like when Guruji used to push our head down onto our legs and not keep the neck cranked back and right. forward bend, so that there's a smoothness and an openness of energy and breath and blood flow through the back of the neck and through the lower spine when you do a forward bend. Okay, so you can see from any forward bending position, the old photos of Guruji or Krishnamacharya, how you can see the parasympathetic area is relaxed and opening, and that's why it's going to be calming. And then the sympathetic nerves, which are move us towards activation, towards energy, towards an outward expensive energy, are going to be from uh, this area here at the bottom of the cervical right up to about the third or fourth uh, lumbar right there. So this whole area here is going to be sympathetic nerve endings coming out from the spine. So any backbending positions are going to be energizing that area. So this is why in the intermediate series, all of the backbending positions that we have in the first half are going to be activating this whole central part of the spine through opening them and, um, and stimulating them. And even when we get to the leg behind the head, What's happening is we're using the strength of the spine, mm -hmm. primarily through this part of the trunk, to keep the leg back behind the head. It's not so much like for opening the hips, it's for testing the strength of the spine while your leg is behind your head. So those are also going to be very activating for the sympathetic nervous system. Um, you can look through all of the poses in intermediate and see which are the ones that are going to be activating sympathetic and which are the ones that are organizing. And so if you look at the poses in this kind of a manner, you can figure out what do I, what's going on with my nervous system and how should I be you know, relaxing my attention, relaxing my breath, or doing different things in order to heighten the effect that I'm looking for. This may be too geeky to ask you, but you just described the movements, and I do find that maybe we're going in the opposite direction. You're talking about forward bends and bringing space in the low back and mm -hmm. space, you know, in the neck area. But often, we're doing just the opposite, you mm -hmm. know. We're lifting our heads and kind of shortening the space there. And with the lengthening of the hamstrings, I feel like everybody's, me, I'm getting very hyper-flexible. Mm -hmm. And then go going the opposite way, the space isn't being made back there the same way. Do you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And then in back bends, doing the opposite, going further not into the upper back. In fact, in fact, it's really hard mm -hmm. in that area to, to kind of access, but going even deeper then into those two um, yeah. areas that are pretty mobile, which again says, am I getting into that, that space where you're saying that, that kind of coming down, the bottom of the exhale, all the, the, that relaxation part. You know what I mean? Constant stimulation, I guess is what I'm yes. saying, through primary and through intermediate. Yeah. Is, is this like a thing or am I... Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> I mean, um, for example, um, if, if you say the drishti in a forward bend is at your toes, um, that basically, and your chin is on your leg, that's for someone who's already very, very flexible. So if their body is completely open, it's not a problem. But if they can't put their head down on their knee, then they don't want to be looking at their toes and cranking their neck forward to look at the toes. They want, Guruji would always come, push the head down, so the forehead was pressing on the leg. That would be the first step. So the first step is to make sure your head is on your leg. And then you can start lengthening down a little. And then when you're super open and the nervous system does whatever you want it to do, then you can put your chin forward and, and look at your feet. But if you're straining your neck to look at your feet, 
then no, it's not going to be so good for your neck um, and thereby not so great for your nervous system. There won't be that same level of relaxation. So certain drishtis um, that, were, um, that he taught were taking into consideration that you could already do the pose, you know, well. Sure. Rabbit fingers for those of you who are on audio. <laughs> um, and, um, but otherwise, just putting your head on your leg was fine. It really makes me want to re-look at the way... Well, and, and actually, I have been re-looking at the way I practice, not just what I practice, mm-hmm. but really taking into consideration um, the nervous system and the conservation and the balancing of energy mm-hmm. instead of just looking at it posture by posture. And Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, um, essentially, that's what it is. I mean, you know, they say, like Dr. Robert Svoboda says, it's easy to build energy, but it's difficult to conserve it. Oh, you know, like you might yeah, make some yeah. money, but it's hard to not spend it quickly. So, you you know, if you're building up energy, you want to be able to assimilate it and absorb it and use it for the things you really need it for and not waste it um, by doing a lot more activity. Uh, so, and those are basically, you know, that's what we do. We have energy coming in or nourishment coming in. We have waste going out. We have the digestion of, of the incoming nourishment, whether it's physical, like food, or emotional, or experiential. And after things are digested, then they are spread out through the body, for the body to use in different ways. And um, then we express our experiences out into the world. And those are the five pranas. That's what's happening. Incoming nourishment, outgoing waste, digestion of the incoming nourishment that we can use, the distribution of that nourishment to every limb of the body and every cell of the body, and then our life is then the expression of all of those pranas out into the world. Tell me that your book coming out is on some of this. Um, it is. It can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. You know, actually, I have. Um, I did. Um, uh, the the lecture on the nervous system is usually like somewhere between four to six hours, um, and it's done over four days. And um, it, when I was in Miami last year, I think it was last year, might have been this year, I can't remember, um, they were, Kino recorded it on her thing, and so the nervous system lectures, I think, are being released today on her Ohm Stars no kidding. website. Um, and no kidding. So, That's awesome. Yeah, so that, those, like the whole talk, basically, or, or one of the talks on the nervous system, uh, and another one on Sankhya and stuff like that, I think both of those are being released today. Um, and, um, and, you know, there's diagrams and graphs and stuff like that. And, uh, but then the book, which will contain a lot of this information, won't be coming out until much later next year, probably the end of the year or early 2019. And I have one other small little book coming out too, um, which we're publishing through Namarupa. And that is in 1999, um, you know, Guruji's wife Amma died right at the end of 97. And um, then later into 1998, um, people started stopping by Guruji's house and just talking in the afternoon and it started turning into a regular thing um, that in early 99, he jokingly started calling conference, and the name stuck. And so when we were there in 1999, um, for a couple months, I was 
writing down everything he said in those afternoon conferences. And I have basically two months, we could only go for two months that year, so I have two months of, um, of like these journals of what happened during the conference. And they're, they're really interesting. Um, so it's a short little book, it's only 17,000 words, and, um, which is like, you know, 50 or 60 pages. And we're going to publish it as just a small little booklet through our magazine, Namarupa. And um, it's been really fun reading through them because there's all the, you know, not just the, the yoga information, but also like the joking and when he was teasing people or the questions that people were asking or when it was boring. And it was just this little slice of time of Lakshmi Puram, which is like completely gone now. And um, now it's a, another whole amazing thing. I mean, it's phenomenal what's happening over there. It's great. Um, but this was a fun time, you know, and when Sharat would joke with him in the afternoon and stuff like that. So that hopefully will um, we'll publish that and release it in January, I hope. Oh, wow. So early January. And that'll be available through Namarupa. What a gift. There, I love talking to the teachers like you who have that kind of depth and experience. You know, like I, I, most of us won't have that experience ever, but to get a glimpse of it through. Yeah, you won't have that experience, but you'll have this experience like going to Mysore and, you know, sure. being with Sharat and, you know, who knows what it's going to be in 10 years. Sure. You know, what if in 10 or 15 years there's a thousand people there and you're, you can say, oh, I was there when there was 200 people. <laughs> I, I, I could sit right here and, and go and talk to him in his office, and now you can't even talk to him in person, you know. Or maybe he just, you know, does something else. He just goes, decides to be a park ranger, and you're like, oh, he doesn't teach anymore. And now I remember a wildlife when I used photographer. To exactly. <laughs> Anything could happen, you know. Who knows what it's going to look like in 20 years, 10 years. Well, 1999 was, what, it was 18 years ago. It really wasn't that long ago when you think about it. It's not that long at all, and there's been a lot of change, so God knows what'll happen. Well, I'm super grateful. Thank you. Are we done? Thank you for inviting me at the well. <laughs> we want we want to do all the thank yous oh. and yeah, no, yeah. seriously, thank you for welcoming us in and, and sitting down for this. Um, anyone listening doesn't know, but you began teaching this morning. That's not even talking about your own personal practice, but than teaching for how many hours straight? A lot. It was it was many and and a little less than five. A little less than five, and then sitting down with us directly after mm-hmm. you got done. That's really generous in I had so coffee. many ways. That's good. Will you definitely keep us informed about when the books are coming out? Because I would love to be able to share and, yeah, and sure. put that up. And and yeah. and um, I'm going to go look and on the Om Stars to go yeah. find your series. Well, I mean, thank you. Um, so on One World Yogis, we have like this beginner yogas thing. Yes. Um, and um, then um, the for the One World Yogis series itself, all of, anytime anyone buys that, the money from that all goes to breast cancer research. For the um, One World Yogis, the new one, the stress reduction one, that basically is supporting the um, production of it for the military. Um, for and so that's that so we have the stress reduction great for beginners and then mm-hmm. we have the beginning one you've done that which breaks apart primary series love it and then for on Kino's website um, we'll have the nervous system lectures and some philosophy lectures as well um, for people who like overly complicated things like I do and um, so those are basically the two different things um, and um, then also on um, with uh 
with um, Deepak's wellness platform, Jio.com. Um, I had done some work with them that uh, he and his partner, Punacha, had wanted to do about um, particular, like, super, super um, beginning-level introduction to yoga for people who could only sit in a chair, stuff like that. So on his website, we have, like, some really simple things as well as... Um, uh, yoga, quote-unquote yoga, for athletes and stuff like that, which are just some basic restorative-type practices. So I know I have some things on some different platforms, and um, I know it's not, like, probably the best business model. Well, um, I'm going to get with you, and I'm going to actually but, uh, list them out, if that's yeah. okay with you. I'm going to so, put it on the Ashtanga Dispatch website yeah. so we can put put them all with the podcast so people can kind of yeah. go through and, and visit the ones that which are, applicable. are appropriate. And, yeah. um, you know, and... Um, so the um but my favorite thing is the breathing app. I mean that's oh, the thing I, that I really like. I mean I like all those things but I really I really like the app because what happens with the breathing app is um that paced breathing is supposed to bring your sympathetic and parasympathetic into like this perfect equilibrium. And when it comes into that equal equilibrium, then it's like hitting a reset button for your nervous system. Um and that's how I feel when I'm done with the resonance breathing. I feel like I've sort of hit this reset button and some of the homeostatic processes. Homeostasis is what your body does to re- keep restoring balance. And, um, and homeostasis takes up a lot of energy because our body is always having to come into this balance state. It's this, this constant balancing act that it's performing. It's not like we just come into balance and we're there forever. You know, you know that. Um, so, but it supports the homeostatic processes. It supports the balance of the branches of the, of the nervous system. It tones the vagus nerve. But um, when those, that outward impulse and the inward impulse come into an equilibrium, then you're like, everything smooths out. Um, and I find that, like, just the best thing, you know. When I was in Amsterdam for the Inner Peace Conference and someone was asking me, I only had 10 minutes a day to do something, what would I do? I said, this is what I would do, honestly. I wouldn't do sun salutations. I would just do 10 minutes of a resonance breathing because I find it to be the most effective thing. And later on that day, one of the organizers of the conference, Wessel, no, uh, Martin, said to me that they had this 96-year-old Sufi who had been speaking in the afternoon, and someone said to him, if there was only one thing that you were going to do every day, what would it be? And he said... I would inhale for six seconds and exhale for six seconds for ten minutes. And I thought, man, awesome. I'm super on to it. <laughs> That's so, awesome. But, you know, now it's been like um, I'm turning 50 next week. I started practicing yoga when I was 18. I started with Guruji when I was 23, I think, 22 or 23. Uh, 23, actually. Uh, those primary series videos that we did in with Yoga Works, mm-hmm. I was 25 when we did those. And I'd been practicing with him for only a year and a half. Um, and he asked me to be in the videos just because I happened to be in California at that time and they needed another person. Um, and um, I have to say that looking back on all those years and seeing how I feel now about practice is that um, I like it even more now than I did when I was doing it back. When I first met Guruji, I didn't even know what Ashtanga Yoga was. I'd never seen it before. Um, and I met him in India. I'd been traveling around. I'd been there a couple times already to India um, for yoga. But um, the 
the perspective on time and experience and practice um, and on enjoying the practices that I'm doing, whatever it might be, however much I have time to do, whether it's 45 minutes or an hour, whether I can do primary or intermediate or some third or whatever, it might be that um, if there are certain poses I can't do anymore just because I don't practice them much anymore due to workload, but that everything else that I can still do um, continues to get better because I continue to um, stay relaxed in it. And it's amazing to see how the practice has this longevity to it that, you know, Guruji always said, keep it going as long as you can. And so even when we were getting, people were getting older, they were getting to be 60 or 70, and David Roach used to say, Guruji, when can I stop? And Guruji would say, you just keep going, you know. Keep going until you, you feel that you can't do it anymore, and then you can slow down. But there's something to that, I think, you know. Not that you want to keep pushing as hard as you can for as long as you can, but keep doing the things that you can do for as long as possible, and keep making your body that thing, that that thing to do a forward bend or a jump back or a jump through or a twist or a headstand is completely normal for your body to do because that normalcy of the pose and that normalcy of the activity output with your body is becomes an expression of who we are so we can last longer, we can be more agile, we can have you know better health as we get older, we can have better clarity of mind as we continue to get older, we can be more active and have more energy. So we don't want to like push too hard when we're younger so that we burn out. We don't want to push too hard when we're older so that we get injured. But we want to assimilate the practices into us so they become normal for us. That we can do them for a long period of time because they are normal, not because they're special. And to get past the specialness of the yoga pose is a key part, I think, of a spiritual practice. That I'm not doing something special, I'm doing something normal. And when I'm meditating, or praying, or chanting, I'm not doing something special. I'm doing something totally normal and calm, which is harmonizing my whole physiology and my biology and my sense of self with the world around me. So it becomes normal to be here, to interact, to be alive, and not something which is different. And this, the idea of doing something which is different than what the rest of the world is doing is... Um, is exclusionary, you know, it's exclusive, it's separate. Um, we don't want to feel separate, we want to feel that we are part of everything, because in reality, whatever reality is, everything is happening at the same time, all the time, like right now, my whole body is performing a bunch of physiological processes that are all happening right now, and your bodies are doing the same thing, and the universe is maintaining itself in different ways with gravity and with space and with time and with whatever and the unseen energies, and everything is happening simultaneously, like right now, at every single moment. It's all happening simultaneously, and we're part of that simultaneous happening as it's going on. And so to feel like we're part of that simultaneous occurrence of experience or of consciousness or of the world is um, one way to deal with stress because I don't think we would feel it so much because everything's just happening and we're part of it as it's just happening um, and uh, so I think that's one of the best ways to deal with anxiety and stress <laughs> 
in the human condition. <laughs> so, I don't know. Ask me in 10 years, I might think something different. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to go home after this and I'm going to have a whole And delete the video. No, no, no. <laughs> Get home. Press, press the race. Well, that was a colossal waste of time. <laughs> what was I thinking? That was amazing. Thank Megan, you. Megan, next time I'll do that, punch me in the head. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. This episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast was hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen, with Chris Lucas as our editor and producer. Ashtanga Dispatch is a lot more than just monthly interviews with teachers from around the world. We have magazines dedicated to various aspects of the practice, as well as weekly articles and an email with personal essays, practical support, and inspiration. And you can find all of this in one place ashtangadispatch.com If you're enjoying these podcasts let others know share them on Facebook or give us some stars on iTunes You can even become a member by supporting the show through Patreon Visit patreon.com backslash ashtangadispatch Thanks again for listening and I'll be back next month with another inspiring episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast Sahana vavatu, Sahana bhunatu, Sahavir yang karavavahai, Tejas vinavaditamastu, Mavit vishavahai. Shanti Shanti Shanti